0: Your idea as a parent that your child has an inherent competency, that she has an inherent capability of feeling disappointed feelings, sad feelings when you separate and recovering from them is really important to her ability to do it. If you believe she can and you know she can, then she's exponentially more likely to do that.
1: Welcome to Atomic Moms, a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and I celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world in order to share their unique stories and the universal experience of raising a child. You can find us on our website, AtomicMoms.com, on social media and also on iTunes. Subscribe so you can get a new episode every week. Today, we're talking separation anxiety. It's a huge topic. It's a delicate topic. So I've called upon Jennifer Waldberger to be a returning Atomic Moms guest. She's been working with children and families for more than 20 years, offering private sessions and classes that incorporate mindfulness and holistic practices. It's really weird uh to say that she's been working with families for 20 years because she looks so young. She will kill me right now, but she looks like Dawn from the Babysitter's Club. It must be the meditating. I've really got to get back into meditating. Okay, more about our incredible guest in a moment, but first, I got to say I love getting emails from you guys. Um I recently got one from a listener in San Diego. And also, by the way, can we have a better name for you amazing people than listener? It feels so passive. Okay, so give me suggestions on Facebook and on your other social media outlets for a better name. I'd say Atomic Mamas, but that seems to exclude dads. Okay, anyway, point being, your letters get to me. Man, they like get me right in the heart. And so here I'm going to share a little bit of a recent letter from a listener in San Diego. She writes, Never have I ever felt so compelled to write a stranger simply for the purpose of saying, Keep up the good work. Ellie, every week you slay me, in a good way, in unexpected ways, even when the subject matter in the episode description doesn't seem like something that interests me. I listen anyway, and I'm proven wrong every time. You speak often about your fear and worry about the impact on your creative process for that reason. And on today in particular, I just felt pulled to type you out a quick word of encouragement on my phone while my 18-month-old tornado of energy naps. Thank you for the authentic and loving energy you bring to a population plagued by judgment, parents. And she goes on, and I wrote her back, and so then she writes me back, and she says... I'm a giddy schoolgirl because I told my husband that Ellie from Atomic Moms wrote back to me, and he said, huh? Who? (laughs) Okay, so I'm sharing uh, that bit of correspondence because I am sitting across from the New York Times bestselling author, Natalie Taylor, right now. She's my sister-in-law. And you must listen to our episode together last month. It's titled, It's Surprising How Strong You Really Are. She teaches high school English. And so she also teaches poetry. And so she started writing some. And wait, before you go like snoozers and switch the podcast over to the longest, shortest time, listen to this. Because it's, uh, man, any person who listens to podcasts religiously, like I'm sure all of us do, you're going to relate to this one. Uh, Natalie Taylor, please share your poem.
2: This poem is called What Happens When NFL Marries NPR. I listen to the best podcast, I tell him as he is making burger patties. You know my favorite show. I look at him. He is looking at the meat. He presses the edges with both hands. I imagine him thinking, perfect circles. You know what my favorite show is, right? He looks up. The geometries of meat have been interrupted. You know, right, the one I talk about all the time. His eyes say he was not anticipating a dialogue. He was ready for a monologue. What's the name of my favorite podcast? He holds the plate of meat as if to say, here are the perfect circles you asked for. Wife and her trickery. Wife and her brain like an ocean. Always moving, always changing. Sometimes peaceful, calm, beautiful. Other times raging, deadly, take you down in a heartbeat. Husband with his brain like a neatly tended library. Dewey Decimal System of Thought, one book out at a time. Burgers were asked for and burgers were made. The sputtering begins as he runs through the shelves of his brain looking for the book on wife's personal favorites. Uh, American tale? American story. Americans tell stories. A swell emerges. The skies grow dark over the ocean. I know everything about your sports. Mascots, lineups, favorite teams, favorite backup teams. I know your favorite players' names. I know your favorite players' nicknames. The Durantula, Big Pasta, the Black Mamba. How do I have room for all of that and you can't even remember? It wasn't the room, he wanted to say. It was the system in which the information was organized. One book out at a time. What good are ten open books? Uh, American Dreamers. Lives of People? Books are flying everywhere as he hunts wildly. The ocean flips a ship mercilessly. I know what a no-no alert is. I know how overtime works in football. I know all sorts of things I don't need to know, all because you... And then he finally finds it. He turns. This American life! He does a touchdown dance, looks at her, and snaps the book shut. He marches out proudly with his plate of perfect circles, ready to stand by the grill and reshelve. I'm dedicating that reading to our listener in San Diego,
1: uh, whose husband went, Who? Huh? <laughs> okay, so today we're all here to talk about separation anxiety. Our guest, Jennifer Waldberger, she's the co-founder of Sleepy Planet Parenting and co-director of Mindfulness at Stephen S. Y School in Los Angeles. She's also co-authored two books: The Sleep Easy Solution and Call Mama Happy Baby. Uh, Natalie, you use Sleep Easy Solution, correct? And it worked. Okay. So uh, our guest, Jennifer Waldberger, has also been featured in a wide variety of media, including Good Morning America, The Today Show, The New York Times, People, and Parenting. Her passion is to help families to create a loving, peaceful environment in which both kids and parents can thrive. So this is part one of this month's Separation Anxiety Series. Uh, I might have to listen to it again. Like all week while I drive Sabrina to her first week of full, her first full week of preschool. Go on your iPhone, hit the podcast app button. It's already there. Type in Atomic Moms, subscribe. That way you can also hit archives or maybe it's feed. You hit feed Well, you'll find all of Atomic Moms previous episodes. We also find, uh, if you go way back, uh, Jen's two previous episodes. So we're going to be right back. Let's do this. Jen, I'm so excited for this episode. I <laughs> I know that separation anxiety is a big deal, but for the first time ever, I wrote on some of my Facebook mom group, like on their on the walls about it, and asking mm-hmm. moms for like their questions. And there was a crazy outpouring. Mm-hmm. Like this is <laughs> such a necessary service, uh, and we super appreciate you taking the time to hold our hands and walk us through this. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is a huge
0: topic for lots of parents for lots of reasons. And um, it
1: brings up anxiety.
0: Separation anxiety brings up anxiety.
1: (laughs) I mean, big anxiety. I was actually on the plane. I was emailing you last night. I was on the plane uh, on the runway and I wasn't sure we were waiting forever because of weather and I wasn't sure I was going to make my connecting flight. And then the idea of spending the night in Denver freaked me out. And I was like, oh my God, I'm writing Jen about separation anxiety and I am having such intense separation anxiety. The idea that I won't see my daughter in the morning. Oh, see? So it's, it goes both ways. It's like the parents experience there it. it is. The kids I know. And it goes it. both ways.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yes. Yes. No doubt about it. I'm wondering if you could start by explaining – sort of when separation anxiety usually shows up and and what the markers are?
0: Well, I think there are sort of three ways to think about separation anxiety. And one of the ways to think about it is that it's uh, a normal and healthy part of development that um, separation anxiety can spike up at lots of different junctures, developmental junctures along the way. Sometimes it will happen when there's uh, a motor milestone that a baby's going through. Sometimes it'll happen for an older child with a cognitive or social-emotional leap forward that they're taking. And it's really understandable that that would be because when you think about, you know, development from the child's perspective, if they're kind of like securely standing in one place and then really coming forward with a new skill or a new ability into uncharted territory, so to speak, the ground underneath them feels a little unsteady, and so that can cause some uh, separation anxiety from someone that they feel really comfortable and safe with. Um, I think another kind of separation anxiety kicks in when there's an unusual circumstance in that child's life. So it could be the birth of a new baby. It could be that you've moved house. It could be starting school. It could be that a parent has had an illness or the child has had an illness. Um, Those kinds of things can also make for separation anxiety because again, something's happening that's unusual and out of the ordinary. Um, And I think that a third kind of separation anxiety is a little bit more chronic in relationship with that particular parent or possibly even in that family. And that would be sort of more a pattern over time of attachment in that relationship where um, anxiety really is, you know, a significant part of the equation, a significant part of the time.
1: So when we talk about attachment, um, and it's a word that I throw around a lot, uh, especially my friends who are therapists throw around a lot. I'm wondering if you can sort of break that down for a mom who's like, I hear the word attachment, but I don't know really what it means. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Uh, How do I know if it's a secure attachment? Like when I drop my kid off at school and she doesn't want me to leave, does that mean we have a secure attachment because she doesn't want me to leave? Or does that mean we have – is it a non-secure or insecure attachment? (laughs) What's the lingo? Yeah well okay so first
0: of all to your point this word is so charged you know it's so loaded um and it mean it can mean so many different things to different people so it's good idea to to sort of define what it is that we're really talking about because i think you know on the face of it attachment can sort of conjure up this image of you know a barnacle attached to a boat or something (laughs) And um, really what it's referring to, there, there are two, um, I would say, sort of seminal pioneers in attachment theory. And one would be John Bowlby and the other would be his student, Mary Ainsworth. And they did a lot of work, uh, Bowlby in the 50s and, and Ainsworth more in the 60s and 70s, um, as well as Bowlby. And they did a lot of work together on looking at attachment in the parent-child relationship and particularly with the primary caregiver. And so really what attachment is referring to is the sense of a loving, attuned connection. So this idea of attunement is a parent's ability to really, you know, gauge and read a child's needs accurately and to respond to those needs. And I think another misconception in attachment is that uh, that sort of attunement means that you're always there for your child and, and kind of coming forward toward them and their needs. But that's not actually what true attunement is about. True attunement is about reading, engaging both your child's need for closeness and more support and help and things like that, feeding, you know, all those, the, the basic needs as well as the emotional and psychological needs. But it's also the ability to gauge and read your child's need for space and independence.
1: That's so huge because so many moms, I think, think like, oh, the attachment, I should be there every second, like breathing down the kid's yeah. neck.
0: Yeah. Totally. And I think that's partly why attachment has become so charged is that there's this mistaken idea that you're being a good mom or a good parent if you are perfectly attending to your child's every need and kind of hovering on top of them 24-7. And not only is that completely impossible, but even if you could do that, um, that wouldn't actually be good for your child because your child's inevitably going to go out into the world and have all kinds of experiences without you. And how are they ever going to figure out how to navigate the ups and downs of life if they haven't had that practice uh, with you in those early years? So it's, Yeah, it's closeness and space. And of course, what totally comes into play here is your own history and your own childhood and how you were parented. And so almost inevitably, what you're bringing to the table as the mom and the parent is you know, uh, some some holdovers of oh, man. not knowing exactly where these lines are, right? Yeah. It's really confusing or it can
1: be. So if you grew up without uh, a secure attachment, what does it even feel like for a mother? Can you feel the sweet spot? Um, are there signals that a kid gives you? Because if a mom is feeling like, God, my kid will not stop clinging to me, she's probably panicking right now, listening to this podcast being like, Oh my God, that's because that's somehow my fault.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so many different branches, you know, to to that tree of, of questions that you were just asking. So, I mean, first of all, I think just to go back to this idea of, of what is healthy attachment. Okay. So healthy attachment, uh, DW Winnicott is another sort of pioneer in the field of Um, parent-child relationship. And he's the one who coined this term, the good enough mother. And I think the place that he was really coming from was hoping to give moms a, a, a bit of ease and peace of mind about the subject, because the truth is you don't have to perfectly attune to your child all the time to create secure attachment. You only have to do that 50% 50% of the time at best um, to create a loving bond. And, and the way that I think we're defining secure attachment is not by, you know, kind of going, well, if my child ever has separation anxiety or distress or, you know, something like that, that they're not securely attached, that is a sign of healthy attachment. So coming back to, you know, Bowlby and Ainsworth, what they saw Is that you know they they created situations for a baby mostly and a young child where mother would literally leave the room and that would send the child into a place of distress um, if they were securely attached. So, separation anxiety is a sign of healthy attachment. It's what does your child do when that primary comfort giver? the person who makes me feel safe and secure in the world is, is absent. So there's, there's physical absence, there's emotional absence. And so when you're asking your question, what if we didn't have secure attachment ourselves as a child? um, I think you have to really take a look at how you're, how you're defining that because your parent couldn't have done, you know, a perfect job either of, of attuning to your every need. And so, If you tend to have a pattern of anxiety in relationship, forget even being a mom for a second. Mm
1: -hmm. If
0: you had a pattern of anxiety in relationship with loved ones, you know, probably your your partner, even before you became a mom, where um, you didn't really feel comfortable or clear about how to navigate this, you know, kind of dance between closeness and space, then yes, there's a pretty good chance that you had an experience as a child that attachment was confusing for you.
1: When I was in college, like if I had a boyfriend and then I studied abroad, if my boyfriend didn't live within 10 miles, like it was over. And I would just cut it Mm -hmm. off. And I would just move on. And I wouldn't feel anything for six months. Is that an attachment issue?
0: (laughs) Well, it sounds like – it sounds like what, what was hard for you in what you're describing is to hold an internal representation of that person and that relationship, even when physical proximity is missing. Yes. So, yes, what you're going for as a child is the sense of what's called object permanence or object constancy, where your ability to, to be in relationship <clears throat> with your parent transcends the physical proximity so even though you may miss them when they you know go out of the room or they you don't see them for you know a few hours Mm -hmm. in a day or something like that you can still access your your love for that person your thoughts about that person um, their voice you know the way it feels like when they're holding you other things and other ways that you would kind of stay in touch if you want Mm -hmm. with that person so um, you know, it may be that that's one thing that's that's challenging for you that that to hold that internal representation of someone when you're physically absent from them, you know, requires drawing on the other
1: aspects of that relationship. In that study that you mentioned earlier, that if a mom left the room and the kid was crying, that meant secure attachment. If if a mom leaves the room and the kid doesn't cry, that doesn't mean that it's a non-secure attachment. Correct.
0: That's important. And it's not just that the kid cries, but that the kid shows some, um, you know, kind of either looking um, after where mommy left, you know, the door toward the door or, you know, something like that. But listen, I, you know, and one of the hats that I wear is I teach mommy groups. So I spend a lot of time around babies and and young children and their moms. And moms get up to go to the bathroom or, you know, they, they may have to get up and and go do something, maybe move their car. You never know. Um, And there are plenty of children that I see who have zero reaction to mommy getting up and going, who have a very secure, healthy attachment because I, I can see that, you know, in the larger context of the time that I'm spending with them. So just because your child doesn't go into distress when you leave the room um, or when you're you're absent from them doesn't mean that you don't have a secure, healthy attachment. And
1: that's such a great point that we always need to look at it like the larger context. It's not just, you know, these one, this one moment and then you're like, oh my God, it's this or that. It's, you know, what is throughout the day, what is your relationship or throughout the month? And it's constantly evolving. Yeah. One question that keeps coming up is, you know, what solace can you give to the I'll quote unquote rejected caregiver because I've experienced both. I have been the one that Sabrina has clung to and I have also been the one sent out of the room. Like, no, I want daddy. Uh, what can it's usually the father? It seems like I seem to be the, the odd man out where I end up being the rejected caregiver more than my husband. Uh, but what solace can you give us when it seems like the child only wants the other parent?
0: a really hard one because you know sometimes this can even happen um as you're spending time with your child you know something happens and they go into distress and they want the other parent and you're sort of going well what am i child liver i'm right here you know and and um yeah it can feel really really challenging and you're right i do most often hear this coming up with daddies. But it can really go either way, and kids can sometimes go through phases. They go through phases where they're very mommy-oriented or very daddy-oriented. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that every parent, as much as it feels good, and I think probably especially for a mother, it's, there's something very primal about feeling needed you know, and the sense that you're fulfilling your role as mother and part of being a mother is taking care of your child. And when your child, you know, needs comfort, that you offer that comfort. So there's something very primal about that that's very understandable. At the same time, if you can clearly see that that child is getting the need met by another parent, even if they're vocalizing and showing preference for that other parent, You do have to kind of take a look at your need to be needed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's go into this. Come on. I'm like pulling up my pants. I'm ready to jump in. Let's go there. Okay. So,
0: um, you know, I think that a lot of us have that need. We have a need to be needed. You don't even have to be a parent really to have that need, but it can feel good. Maybe it's a a a woman's issue maybe it's more of a female thing but this need to be needed um to be able to take care of someone to be able to meet needs you know all of those things again feel very fulfilling but it's not about you in the parent-child equation um it's about your child oh my god will you repeat that one more time
1: Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Oprah would say that's a tweetable moment (laughs) on Super Soul Sunday. It is, man. That is so good. Yeah. You're not the one that's important. In the parent-child
0: equation, it's not about you. So again, if your aim is healthy attunement to your child, then your attunement may be, well, this child needs daddy right now, or this child needs the other parent right now and this child needs for whatever reason the the loving arms of somebody else and my attunement to that child in the moment is allowing her need to be met in the way that she needs it to be met now what's also important to acknowledge here is that this you know, your own needs as the parent also do factor in. So you can't have a parent-child relationship where it's 1000% about the child's needs throughout the entire trajectory of that child's childhood. So when they're infants and newborns, it's obviously way, way, way tipped in favor of the baby's needs. But as that baby grows into an older baby and a toddler and a young child and a child and a preteen and a teen and beyond, the, the balance can shift a little bit more over time toward your needs and your child's needs. So you can express a need for closeness with, say, a five-year-old by asking for a hug. So your need for closeness and your need for, for affection are legitimate, but the five-year-old has the right to say, yes, I would love to have a hug. Let's have one. Or nope. I don't want a hug right now. And so it's not that you, the parent then get left with, Oh, well, then I just don't get to have my need met. You still have a need for closeness, but go to your partner or spouse, go to a friend, go to somebody else to get that need if your child is saying no. So, What you have to sort of do as the parent is take responsibility for your own needs and meeting your own needs and not make that about
1: your child. Amen. Uh, I'll work on it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. For the rejected parent, is there anything that you can do to sort of help foster their relationship? So that it's not always on the mom because that's, it's really flattering when your kid only wants you, but it's such a burden. Yes,
0: it can be. It can be both of those things. And so I think that what you want to sort of take a look at is, you know, if, if you're the one that your child tends to want in that moment of distress, um, do you have a tendency to swoop in and rescue your child or the other parent in a moment where something's, you know, happening, that your child is getting upset. Um, so just take a look at your end of the equation there, because I think, especially, I think this often happens with babies, especially in young children, that a mommy would see, you know, daddy may not spend as much time with the child as you do, and your child may be a little bit less familiar with daddy in a comforting sense that way. And so um, your child may immediately reach for you or look to you or cry and you may want to swoop in and rescue and save. Don't do that. You can use your voice and you can say, oh, mommy, here's you, honey. Yes, you're crying right now. But let daddy, you're saying this to yourself now, you're, you're going to let daddy or the other parent hold that child anyway at least for, you know, half a minute or something like that. Slow down your tendency to want to rush in there and and make it all better for everybody. Um, And again, monitor your own internal stuff that's happening right there, your own anxiety that you may be feeling that your child is in distress and it's not getting fixed and it doesn't feel like it's being attended to, but it is because the other parent is right there. And you can use your words, you can use your presence. There are other ways that you can attend to your child without necessarily having to come and do something physical. Now, if your child continues to escalate, um, you may come a little closer and maybe you and the other parent can kind of hold her together, but you have to be willing um, to allow your child not to be immediately comforted sometimes with the other parent present, in order for her to develop a sense of like, oh, actually, I can, I can calm down with somebody else too. And that's win-win for everybody.
1: Another thing that comes up all the time is the babysitter issue because it feels like in the early days, there's this beautiful window when your child isn't totally aware that you are separate beings and that you can leave. So they seem super chill and they're totally cool with you leaving. And then there comes the day when separation anxiety rears its ugly head and you have to introduce a new sitter and your child doesn't want the new sitter Um, and your child is screaming and yelling and acting histrionic and like they're going to die, how do you introduce a sitter at that point? Or do you just say, well, I missed the window and now I'll be, I'll never get my errands done until my kid is 12. (laughs) You've got to get your errands
0: done. So, (laughs) you know, when, when you introduce a sitter, um, babyhood, you know, toddlerhood, that's, a bit subjective for every parent, um, you know, your, your comfort level, um, is important to attune to also, but, uh, but yes, you know, inevitably you're going to have another caregiver watch your child. And so obviously you want to take the time to select that person carefully, interview them carefully, allow that person to, um, and time around your child before you've even left. I would say twice before you actually leave the home so that you have a really clear sense of, yes, I feel good about how this person is interacting with my child. I feel like we are philosophically an- aligned enough with how this should look um, and how this person is you know, kind of attending to my child. So really depends on, you know, whether you're talking about a caregiver who's going to be spending a lot of time with your child or more just to run errands and stuff like that in terms of how important it is that this person feel like an actual extension of you and your own parenting philosophies. But um, obviously, you need to feel comfortable with this person in order to be able to leave your child and feel comfortable enough. So it's really important to vet them, and again, to see them in action with your child, with you present. I would say at least twice before you leave, and then you go for you know a short time for your first run, a longer time for your second run, and then you you see that it's okay. And um, you know your child may um, have feelings when you leave the house, and this again is is a real can kind be of a real pitfall as the parent because it can bring up this idea that, oh no, she really doesn't like this person, or I really shouldn't go, or she's not okay, and I do need to stay and attend to her. It can feel very confusing in that moment. What's the right thing to do? But most often, if you've taken the time to introduce this caregiver to your child, and your child's not you know, in a strange developmental place where you just had a new baby or something like that, um, They will have big feelings, but you'll get the report after you've left that they calm down usually within a few minutes.
1: Usually it doesn't go on and on. Uh, I remember when I was kind of going through a weaning depression, and so, you know, my mind was all, I was bonkers anyway. But I remember my sitter at the time saying that, you know, Sabrina was having a hard time with me leaving. And so she kind of suggested that we just not come back like not go in and out of the house or like not check in throughout the day. And I had a really hard time with that. If we were to go back in time, what would your suggestion be for that sort of, you know, a mom coming in and out and it upsetting the kid? Should we not come in and out? I mean, I just did it anyway. What were you seeing as upset or what was the caregiver telling you was happening? I would see that she would see me, we'd play, we'd have a good time. But the second I'd leave, it was like ripping off a Band-Aid even though I would say to her, you know, mommy's going to go and mommy's come, I'm going to come back. And, you know, I'd walk her, talk to her about it. Uh, there would always be a few minutes of crying. And then the sitter felt like she had to work, you know, extra hard to get my daughter back to like, you know, her usual happy self.
0: Well, it's interesting because to me, a few minutes of crying is totally normal. And so this is actually a good example. Of how old was Sabrina when this was happening?
1: Hmm. I want to say she was almost a year.
0: Okay. So to me, this is a good example of, you know, she's getting a little bit older and she's got her needs, but you've got your needs too. And whether your need as the mom is you're starting to work a little bit, or you, you do have errands to run, or, you know, whatever reason you may have to kind of come and go like that, that's reasonable. That's not an unreasonable thing to to do or to ask of your child. Um, now, if that child, again, was going through some other extenuating circumstance, where um, she just gave up her pacifier, or, you know, she I guess she probably wouldn't be at that age. But I'm trying to think of, you know, maybe she just started to walk or something like that. Mm -hmm. And her, her separation anxiety was a little bit heightened. That could be something to, you know, be a little bit more careful about. I don't know if my suggestion would be just don't come back. We can talk more about that. But you know, just to underscore a few minutes of crying and tears, even if it seems really heightened is normal.
1: Is the time that I get with my daughter, that 20 minutes back in those days, like, is thats is that 20 minutes that I got to play with my daughter worth the few minutes of tears she would have afterwards?
0: To me, yes. If it's something that you want to do and it's something that she clearly enjoys, that 20 minutes of connect time. Now, if it was 20 minutes, you know, 10 times throughout the day, that's maybe a little bit choppy, you know? Gotcha. But if you have 20 minutes, you know, here and there a couple of times and you both clearly enjoy the time and it, and it clearly fills you both up, even if it's hard to say goodbye, what she experiences every single time she says goodbye is I have a spike in my upset feelings and then they calm down again, and my mommy comes back eventually, and I see that in this relationship, there's room for closeness and space. Now, this is why you have to choose your caregivers carefully, because if you have a caregiver who herself has a very difficult time with your child's big feelings or with comings and goings because of her own history, oh my gosh. then her own anxiety maybe spilling over into the equation there because what you're describing to me sounds okay. So this actually circles back to something that you said a few minutes ago that I wanted to touch back on, which is, you know, okay, got it, that it's not only about me and I'll work on it, but there's something very, very important to acknowledge as the adult in this equation. Nobody ever talks about mommy separation anxiety. Well, hardly anybody does. And you yourself may have your own feelings as the adult about the separation. It's not, the answer to that can't just be, well, you're the mom, get over it. That doesn't feel very kind or very loving toward yourself. And there's obviously a good reason that you have to feel the way that you do because you have your own history where this is difficult for you. So let's be a little bit more empathic about that and really acknowledge that those feelings are there. And I can talk more about how I would usually um, help somebody through that if you want me to.
1: Um, Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. So one of the other hats that I wear is
0: I teach mindfulness and meditation. And that came into my life through my own difficulty, um, with anxiety and um, some of my own, you know, difficult feelings in relationship with comings and goings, if you want to call it that, separation and attachment. Um, and I was tired of living on the ceiling. And so I really searched for um, tools and practices that I could use to, to kind of bring myself off of the ceiling and give myself some of that attunement that I didn't feel like I got. And to me, that's largely what mindfulness is about. You don't always hear it described that way, but it's, it's self-attunement. And it can be, as a parent, sort of a reparenting practice where you have heightened emotion in a moment for any reason. It doesn't matter what the reason it is. It doesn't matter what the book said or you know, the expert said should happen in that equation. If you're having a feeling There's a reason and a good reason you're having that feeling and it can be part of your own um, uh, (laughs) development as a parent to learn how to parent your own self in that moment. So to me, all that is, is a willingness to turn toward that uncomfortable feeling, whether it's sadness, pain, anxiety, irritation, whatever it is. To kind of locate it somatically in your body, get really clear on what it feels like and what it's doing, breathe into it, and let it be there. Like I give verbal permission sometimes for that feeling like, even though I don't really want you to be here, I understand that you have your own wisdom and intelligence, and I'm going to let you be here, even though I'm continuing to do what I need to do in this moment.
1: Jen, thank you so much. This information is so invaluable. If a mom is in another part of the country, because you're based in Los Angeles, uh, and do you do consults? And how would a mother reach you? I do
0: uh, consults by phone and in person. I'm in Los Angeles, but I work that way with families all over the country and all over the world. And you can go on to my website, which is sleepyplanet.com.
1: Hey, everybody. If you liked this episode, please share a review on iTunes. It's the easiest, simplest, uh, most effective way of helping our podcast out. And uh, I look forward to sharing part two of this separation anxiety series. Um, We go way deeper. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear the full lineup for July. It's incredible. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.